Welcome to episode 18 of Red Bull Rewind. My special guest today is Grant Legrange, and we talk Louisiana Champions Day from this past Saturday. Some stuff that we talk about includes how watching the board is important, finding the best closer in turf races, and how the best last out buyer can still be important. This is Red Board Rewind. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Grant Legrand. Grant, how are you doing today? Hey, good. I'm doing good. Pleasure to have you on our show. Just a couple questions for people who might not know who you are in the racing world. What exactly uh, is your job down there at the fairgrounds, and which, how did you end up getting into racing? Yeah, so uh, first off, uh, over here at fairgrounds, I do, I'm on air uh, for three or four races a day with Joe Christofek, who most of the racing world will know. Uh, so I do on-air racing analysts uh, before uh, the each race. And I also do bar notes and um, backside riding. So pretty much uh, anything that has to do with some of these graded stakes horses that come down here to the fairgrounds to train over the winter. We have a, a ton of trainers now that have gravitated towards this surface. I uh, just recently sent out a little piece on Warriors Charge, who's going to be making his comeback since the Preakness here on a Wednesday allowance race. So we have some, uh, we have a lot of uh, top level trainers here. So it keeps me busy with the born notes, uh, writing about their stable, some of their big courses. And so that's what, that's what keeps me busy most of the day. I got into racing actually uh, when I was younger. My grandfather used to take me to the track and um, I was always into numbers. I was, he was a math, he was a math teacher. So I was always into numbers, got gravitated towards the track and started uh, crunching stuff myself and have been addicted ever since. Now, with the barn notes, is that mostly just for stakes? Do you kind of do, like, some other stuff with the lower-level races, like the claiming races? Do you kind of figure out, like, who's been claiming what race, horses and stuff like that, or is it mostly just for the stake horses? Yeah, not so much. Mostly uh, the barn notes, really all it is, it's just to keep tabs on, um, you know, on the, on the bigger prospects uh, that are back there. The claiming ranks and, you know, and, and that type of thing, um, usually, uh, you know, we'll – we have tons of claiming races and a plenty. That's the backbone of racing. Anywhere you go is the is the claimers. But mm-hmm. usually we try. I try and just kind of usually born notes riders. We'll try and kind of focus on the stakes caliber horses and the big names of the barns. Uh, people are usually more interested in that. What's one of the hardest things when you're handicapping the fairgrounds compared to let's say a Saratoga or a Gulfstream? Is there a big difference that are like some angles that you like to try and find specifically for this meet? Um, as far as specific angles, um, it's kind of tough. Uh, one of the things that I like to look for in, um, Louisiana bred races is a lot of times these horses, uh, that run in these Louisiana bred races, they'll take a bunch of time off, uh, in between meet. So like they'll come from, they'll run at Evangeline over the summer. And sometimes they'll just, the trainers will just put those Louisiana breads on the bench until fairgrounds, uh, in the winter, because a lot of these guys like winning races here. Trainer Ron Fauché uh, is a Louisiana local. He does that a ton where he'll just lay off his horses for months and bring them back here fresh and 
right now he's leading trainer here. So one of the things that I tell people, especially on air for the Louisiana bread races, is that even in the lower level claiming ranks, you don't necessarily want to take uh, too much note of those long layoffs. I know that at other places, sometimes it can be a little alarming. You know, if a horse has been on six months and he's now running in a five claimer, you know, it's it's not always as big of a deal here. A lot of these trainers point for this meet specifically. So those layoffs, um, it's just a small little angle. Really, it's not like a huge put your, all your money on that horse, uh, make it your best bet type of thing. But it's a small thing that comes up more than you'd think. So I always keep an eye on that, and I try and mention that to people that ask for small little tidbits. Are there any under-the-radar connections, jockey or trainer, that you think that maybe don't get enough credit at the fairgrounds? Like, obviously, Florent Giroux, you know, C.J. Hernandez, those type of guys, everyone knows them. But is there anybody who's kind of, like, maybe upcoming that's only been there for a few years? The jockey colony here is always uh, pretty deep, so it's kind of tough to to mention anyone that flies under the radar. You know, we have Ricardo Santana will be here next year riding for Asmussen, uh, Florent here over the winter, James Graham is here, Sean Bridgmahan. So the colony's always really deep here over the winter. But uh, some of the guys that a lot of people, not necessarily mainstream yet, Mitchell Merle, who uh, splits his time between Arlington and Chicago and here for the winter, he's starting to pick up some mounts for trainer Michael Stidham, um, rides a lot of Godolphin horses here on the grass for trainer Mike Stidham. So he's one to kind of keep an eye on. He's been around, he's not necessarily a new face, but uh, he's been around for a little bit down here, but he's starting to work his way up the ranks. He had a riding triple last week, and he's always uh, fun to watch ride on the grass. Mitchell Murrow is one. Uh, Miguel Mena, obviously, is no one that uh, is a name that's been around forever, rides a lot for Al Stahl. Does kind of fly under the radar some of the times with just some of the other big names here, but like I said, the colony here is so big, uh, so deep, and anyone, any one of these guys can, can walk away with a riding title on any given year. Now, one thing with me growing up in the races, my dad, he loves to play fairgrounds. And one thing he always told me was because of such a long stretch there that it seems that speed horses can never hold and that it seems to be a closer's paradise. Is that kind of still going on now or is it more even? It's one of those things where it just depends on um, how you look at it because, you know, any any dirt surface in America is by default going to be somewhat speed favoring. Here it's not as it's not a I've never noticed um, a huge difference. I think that the surface here plays extremely even. The dirt course here is extremely the, the long stretch does sometimes come up and bite these early speed horses, but a lot of times it's only when they blast out. You know, if it's a three quarter of a mile race and they go twenty one and three, a lot of times you'll see them fade deep in the stretch. But th- that's that'll happen anywhere. You know, you you run twenty one and three at Belmont, then you're going to get caught late in the stretch too. So it's not just a necessarily a fairgrounds thing it's more of a just a racing thing but i think the surface surface here is really even and uh, you can win five wide coming from the back of the pack or you can wire the field in a 22 and 44 half mile and take them all the way down the stretch so i think it plays pretty fair i think i will take the information going forward when i start looking at these prep races farther down the road what do you say we get into these races now grant these three races that i picked yeah, out sure. so the first race and just so everyone knows these are all Louisiana bred state bred races that we're going to be talking about. The first one is race eight, the Louisiana champions day juvenile, first of a hundred thousand, six furlongs on the dirt. I know there's a horse in here, number seven, chimney rock that you wanted to talk about. Grant, what were your thoughts on this race? Yeah, I thought uh, going into this race, I thought that actually I, I ended up taking a shot against chimney rock. I thought that if this horse 
wasn't going to fire on Dirk. He's obviously the best horse in the race. Comes out of the Breeders' Cup, juvenile turf sprint, second only beaten three quarters of a length uh, to four wheel drive that day. So was obviously the class of the race. Um, the one to beat. He was eight to five on the morning line. He took early money. It's always important to watch the board in two-year-old races, whether it's made in special weights at Saratoga or if it's Louisiana Champions Day here at Fairgrounds. You always want to pay attention to the early money, keep checking the board in these two-year-old races. If a horse goes cold on the board, it's not a not a, not, not a good sign, but sometimes um, it can also give you a little bit of inflated price. And that's kind of what happened early on with number two, Binding Agreement, who I ended up choosing on top. A good first out winner at Fairgrounds and a special weight race that I was here for. I watched it live. He was up close on the pace early. Uh, kind of like we just, this kind of fits into what we just talked about. They went 21 and four for the first quarter of a mile. He was only two lengths off of that fast early pace and he exploded down the lane. Ended up winning his debut race by seven and three quarters length. Got a good speed figure that day. I thought that binding agreement would get a little bit, uh, would probably float in price a little bit. And early on, he did. He was up on the board at 6-1 to one, uh, early in the betting. Chimney Rock was taking a ton of money, um, as the horse deserved, too. You know, he's the best horse in the race. He deserved to be the favorite. A couple of uh, three back-to-back-to-back second-place finishes, all in better company. I thought it was a really good race to play, um, and for that reason, I decided to look for a price. Uh, the way that I uh, – I'm not sure how deep uh, you'd like to go here, but we can talk about the way I constructed the ticket if you'd like um, – but I thought that binding agreement was the, the most likely upsetter, and uh, that's how I play. I constructed my tickets around him. I thought the craziest thing was with the market, as you were saying, one was taking all the money, and binding agreement was kind of floating up. By the end, as they go into the gate, binding agreement actually ended up being the favorite at one point three to one against Timmy Rock, who was like seven to five or maybe a little bit shorter. And it just seemed to me like a horse like Chimney Rock, a bunch of turf races. As soon as they switched surfaces, I always read one of the old handicapping books was like, it, you could be racing on the moon on, on turf if you're racing on dirt on earth. And it's just like, people just see these speed figures and they see eight to five and Maker and Drew and there's like, oh, this horse obviously, you know, will have like a really good chance. I thought this horse was an absolute play against. The horse I kind of ended up going out on was uh, the number six out of my bind. A speed horse had improved First time off the layoff for James Hodges. Really, really nice race. Only a 70 buyer, but up on the, like, was one wire to wire. Really, really hot pace. I like when horses can stay on hot paces and still end up winning. And I know you wanted to talk about your wagering. How did you construct your tickets around binding agreement? Yeah, and like you said, like you mentioned there, um, there at the beginning, binding agreement did end up actually going off favorite, which was extremely surprising to me. I thought for sure that Chimney Rock would be the favorite, as, as did morning line maker Mike Deliberto, as did I think everyone here, as a, you know, anyone that watches racing, I thought, think everyone. So it was it was um, about midway through the betting binding agreement started to tick down slowly, but surely and going into the gate did get that favoritism. My tickets were already in by then. I ended up playing uh, binding agreement, just keyed over a couple of long, a couple of long shots. I played binding agreement over number six, one, and four. Um, uh, the six being out of my bind, the one being the men and I see you, and the four being Richard Ronald. I thought that if Chimney Rock did, and so the the idea behind playing a ticket like that is, uh, and that was just one of the you know one of the tickets. But the idea behind a ticket like that is, if I don't think that Chimney Rock can win, then I absolutely don't want to have the horse underneath. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to be looking for prices. I'm going to be looking to 
to hit it out of the park if I think that you can beat this favorite. So I didn't use a horse in second. I did end up using the horse in third in some trifectas just because, uh, you know, it's, if you're going to, if you're going to hammer down on the exacta, play a little cover there with him in third in the trifecta. And if he runs like you think you will run, which is not top two, you can still get paid with him coming in third. So, um, I played against the favorite and usually when I do that, I won't include the horse on top nor on the bottom. I'm looking to hit it out of the park. I'm looking for a nice solid price on top followed by a good, um, mid to long price, long shot underneath. It ended up not working out that way. Um, finding agreement went off favorites, but, uh, I couldn't have predicted that. I was, you know, if, if I was sitting in front of my computer, um, all day and had the, had the resources to cancel those bets and get out while, when binding agreement was taking so much money, I can't say I would or wouldn't have, but it certainly would have crossed my mind as he dropped down to favoritism. But, um, it's just the way it works sometimes. You put in your bets 12 minutes to post and the horses three to one or seven to two or whatever he was. And then he ends up going off favorite. So there, you can't predict that I had my tickets in and that's, uh, I just stuck with it. One last question before we get to the race call. When binding agreement ends up being the favorite, as you say, if you were in front of your computer, would you have just gone for less exactas and maybe more of just a hard on the nose win bet? Or do you think you still would have stuck with the exactas? You don't really like to change out of, you know, horizontal or verticals or just going one place show. You just kind of stick with your bet. No, I think that if, if, if given the opportunity, um, so I never, I never like to play. If I, if I'm going to play an exact, like I said, I kind of like to um, squeeze as much value as I can out of. If I, if I'd have been in front of the computer, I would have canceled the exacta and just doubled or tripled up and just bet a straight win bet on binding agreement, or even um, half of the bankroll on a win bet, and then just double and triple up on the rest of the half and play a, a double somewhere or try and hook them up in a in a pick three or something like that. But uh, no, no, I, I would have canceled the exact. I don't, I don't necessarily like um, uh, using a favorite on top in exactas. I'd, I'd prefer to on the nose win bet or key in a double and just triple or quadruple the the base bet of that ticket. Let's see if me and Grant can beat the second choice Chimney Rock in the race right now. They're off and sprinting, and the Louisiana Champions Day Juvenile Palvera blasting out of there. Good speed from Chimney Rock, and there's Pickens, who's adding pep to the pace right there toward the inside. The minute I see you, and Binding Agreement eases back off the speed. It's Pickens who dashed through for Sean Bridgemahan to grab the front by length from Palvera in the green cap. Toward the inside, the minute I see you, running in third position, Chimney Rock fourth on the outside, going past the half mile. Binding Agreement drifting, then toward the inside, Richard Ronald looking to make inroads on these leaders. We trail back to out to my bind at the opening quarter, 21.68 seconds, just inside, three furlongs to go. It's Pickens who leads at the inside from in between horses, Palvera. Chimney Rock is now stoking up three deep to the inside. The minute I see you being ridden, binding agreement fanned wide. Then Richard Ronald out of my bind, last to make the top of this fairground stretch. Half mile 45.59 seconds. Chimney Rock's run. Chimney Rock has taken a short lead with one furlong left from a drifting Pickens on the outside. A one pace binding agreement. Then in between horses is Palvera, but close to home with Florent Giroux. It's Chimney Rock, and Chimney Rock dominated them. Chimney Rock, a decisive winner of the Louisiana Champions Day Juvenile by six. Finding agreement second, out of my bind third. The minute I see you finish fourth and 111.46. And Chimney Rock actually does get it done as a second choice. Only a 69 buyer dropping from an 83 out of the Breeders' Cup, which makes me tend to think that this race might not be end, end up being that strong. He did win by six, though. 
what was your opinion after this race there, Grant? Yeah, it happens. You know, this is just the, the most class in the race. Uh, a Wells, um, a good two-year-old here, just better than this field. Uh, like you mentioned, the buyer speed figure didn't come up too strong. And the, the, visually, the race was impressive. I thought that when the speed figure came back, it uh, sort of surprised me a little bit. But um, it was just the horse was the best of the, in the race. Did get uh, pushed a little wide, but to win by six and a half, geared down, it says in the comment section, and that's a little bit of an understatement. Uh, the horse was completely wrapped up. Uh, the best the best horse in the race and, and proved that he was. Number two, binding agreement goes from a 75 maiden victory to a 55. Think just a little bit too much too soon facing that class of arrival, or what else could have possibly gone wrong? I don't think, uh, honestly, I don't think anything uh, went wrong. I think that uh, he ran his race. Colby had him in a, in a good spot. And uh, he just wasn't 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 good enough on uh, on Saturday. <clears throat> well, I'm I'm excited to see where he comes back. I'm looking forward to see uh, where Trainer Alstall points him next because if he can face um, the Louisiana Breads again somewhere, I think that'd be interesting to see how he runs. And it's also interesting to see how Chimney Rock comes out of here because now you know you may get a little bit of an inflated price wherever he shows up next just because of that low buyer speed figure and uh, doing it the way he did looks. On paper, looks okay, but we'll see uh, where he ends up next and what kind of field he's up against there. And I don't know if how you feel, if I feel the same way. When I'm looking at turf to dirt switches, I always seem like people can always pick out the right t- the turf races. So if you were to run back to turf, I feel like the number wouldn't be inflated. But I feel like when people are looking through and trying to find like the dirt races through, like with a turf horse, I feel like sometimes they just end up missing them, and that's how you get your inflated prices. At least that's what it seems like yep. to me. Yeah, and I think that, uh, look, if this horse shows back up in, a, in another turf sprint, he should and will be the favorite, and he'll probably win that race too. But anything on dirt, that's going to be a question mark. Uh, he showed he can win on dirt, but he didn't show he can do it uh, very impressively numbers-wise. What do you say we jump on to our next race? Race 11. This was the 100K Louisiana Champions Day ladies turf going about 1 and 1 16th mile. Your opinion here, Grant? This was a this was a really interesting race. There was a lot of different ways you can go. Number two, room to finish, was five to one on the morning line. Didn't take a whole lot of early money, but did slowly make her way down uh, to favoritism, if I'm remembering correctly. Room to finish, I was I wasn't necessarily against, but usually in a big, I mean, especially a turf field in a big field like this. I'm looking for a price. I'm never going to go into a big turf race like this and start with the favorite and, and stamp, um, you know, put that horse in my single on a ticket unless, you know, nothing's 100% horse racing. I wouldn't do that unless the horse is by far the best. To me, I couldn't find anyone here that was by far the best. So I ended up taking a shot. I uh, I circled number 11, Netta Bear, and number um, three, Savvy Shipman. Netta Bear, 15 to 1 on the morning line with Jockey Florent Giroux. Uh, I was actually uh, leaning more to, towards number three, Savvy Shipman, with Corey Lannery for Mike Maker, who also trained uh, Winner Chimney Rocks, who we just talked about. But Mike Maker had this one a little bit of a step up in class. But I thought getting back on the grass course, that number three back, um, that it, it, I, I run my numbers through a little uh, different software, and sometimes that software will lead me to some of these longer-priced horses. And Savvy Shipman's one of the ones that popped up, and 
I thought that the race, I used to race three back. Uh, I used to line three back. It was a little bit, it was only an optional 20 state thread race, but the number came back really good. Um, like I said, this was one of those races where I was willing to take a shot. So I used number three, Savvy Shipman. I also leaned towards number 11, Ned Bear for Jockey Florent Giroux. Coming out of that allowance race at Delta Downs, was another one was going to try and go back to the turf course for trainer Alan Landry. The only reason that this horse even hit my radar was because I used that line two back. Usually if it's a grass race, I'm going to be using grass uh, races in the past performances, obviously. So I kind of just completely ignored every other race in the past performances, focused on the race two back, had a good number there, had a good late pace number. Um, and I thought in a field like this, it was going to be about who can come uh, close the quickest late. I didn't think there was any standout early. I thought that it was just going to be a sprint to the finish, and Nettie Bear came back good on those numbers. So that was kind of my criteria entering the race. I was looking for someone with really good late numbers only on the grass course. I was focusing on those races, and those two uh, came up strong on my numbers. So those are the two I stuck with. For me, the number 11, Netta Bear, I thought that the jockey change was massive going from Thornton to Fleuron Giroux. I thought room to finish just seemed like seven seconds, just seems to like second, big field like you were saying. And then when I saw how much money it took, I just couldn't imagine how somebody, how, how would want to make a bet on this horse. And then why don't you, if you want to or can, explain a little bit about that different software you use when you pull up your own numbers if you want to. Yeah, so uh, just I can I can talk all day. I can try and explain to people all day about it. But just a quick, uh, it's it's um, it's a feet per second software. So basically, what it does is it'll take any pace line that you take in a in, that you enter in a horse's past performances. Um, the key to it is you have to obviously choose the right race to use because if you use the wrong race, it can kind of throw off all of your uh, all of your data. But you try and use you try and compare apples to apples. Uh, so you throw that that race into the software. It'll crunch up the feet per second of how fast the horse ran throughout each stage of the race. So it'll measure the first quarter of the mile, the half mile, the three quarters of the mile, the mile, and you know as as far as the race is. So it'll crunch those numbers in a feet per second value, which is uh, they it, it uses feet per second just because that's the most accurate um, pace. Uh, projection that you can get in my opinion obviously some people uh, lean other ways but in my opinion if you're going feet per second that's the most accurate way to do it and it'll crunch all those numbers and then it'll spit out a number and compare it to the rest of the field and then from there I just uh, I have different criteria for different races of numbers that I'm looking for so as I mentioned I entered the race uh, two back for Nanny Bear Uh, the numbers came back crunched it up uh, against the rest of the field and Nanny Bear was on top um, in the late number so I leaned to that one. And then third and the late numbers was number three, Savvy Shipman. There's a bunch of other criteria that I, I use and that can be used. But for the most part, in uh, the most basic standpoint, you kind of want to, um, you know, you want to designate certain races for to look at certain things. And for this grass race with uh, no clear early dominant speed, I was looking for who can finish the last uh, eighth of a mile in the fastest manner. If anybody who likes to read handicapping books want to learn a little bit more about feet per second, uh, Tom Brohammer's Modern Pace Handicapping has chapters full of that kind of stuff. I actually have a copy of it right here on my desk. The horse I ended up on Grant was Mr. Al's Gal. I just thought the race at Laurel with that big gaudy speed figure of an 88 at 67 to 1, I thought maybe they had – I know he had raced on the grass five times, and I just thought that maybe he was coming around to the right spot. The workouts weren't – all that fast, that last work on December 4th was in a minute 
and three fifth seconds. So I thought the last work going in showed that she was doing all right. What were your thoughts on Mr. Al's gal? Yeah, I thought um, I actually didn't use this one uh, in, in any of my tickets. I, I thought that uh, I can see the reason um, that she linked to uh, coming out of the open $100,000 stakes race at Laurel. So class-wise, the horse was there. The only problem I had was uh, that race was going five and a half on the grass. So uh, it kind of ties into what we were just talking about, as I mentioned. I entered this horse into the yeah, into this horse into the the stuff that I used. Uh, the only line that I had available was that last race on the grass. Numbers didn't come back all that great late. Um, has obviously has a ton of um, early pace to work with, but a lot of times, man, and I mean in these two turn races on, on the grass, especially here at Fairgrounds, these races are won by horses that get covered up early and just swing six wide and just power all the way down the stretch. And for me. Mr. Alscow didn't have those numbers to do it for me. From a betting standpoint, I know you said you had talked about Savvy Shipman and Netta Bear. What did you end up doing with those two horses? So I ended up um, kind of the same strategy as I was looking for in the juvenile that we talked about with Chimney Rock and um, and Binding Agreement. But here, instead, I just I used Savvy Shipman and Netta Bear in an exact keto on top. And I did, I'm sorry, I used Nette Bear Keat on top. And so it's basically a 311 with 3569. Uh, um, I can give you the names of those horses, or people can just go and, and look them up in the charts. But that's the way I did it. I was looking for a price on top, as we had mentioned in Juvenile. I was looking to key a price on top and then try and add another mid to long range shot underneath. This is one of those, this is an exact strategy that I use that just kind of, like I mentioned earlier, it's looking for. You're trying to hit it out of the park. You only want to be right once with this, and when you are right, you want to get paid. So, And honestly, in a race like this, no matter who, the, if I'm going to be against the favorites and I'm, I have two live uh, mid to long shot prices that I like, whoever goes off favorite, I'm going to throw out in the second spot no matter what. It's kind of like it's kind of a systematic approach rather than a discretionary, you know, um, if I like the favorite, well, maybe I'll throw it in second. For me, in a race like this, it's I don't care who the favorite is. It's a, it's more of a system to where I'll just throw that horse out because I know the odds are in my favor because I already liked, I've already uh, identified two mid to long price shots. So I ended up just throwing out, throwing out the favorite in second who ended up being number two room to finish. Threw that horse off along, out of all the second and third place spots, was trying to take a shot uh, with Savvy Shipman and Nettie Bear on top and then those others that I mentioned underneath and was just looking to get, I mean, you, you throw a 20 to one and a 15 to one shot in there underneath and you end up being right, and that can make your whole day. So that's what I was looking to do here. It's really interesting with that exact how you throw out the favorite for second. I've always tried to be of two minds where it's just depending on how exactly strong I feel the favorite will be, that sometimes it'll almost be worse if I have a long enough shot on top. Just in case that the favorite runs second, the exact sometimes will still pay enough that it'll be worth my while. But I also make sure that if I'm doing enough exact accommodations that I'm not over extending my bankroll to fit in a favorite like that, as you said. Yeah. And I certainly think that you can, uh, for most people, I, I, I'd suggest uh, playing it that way just because it does make sense. You know, it's kind of it, the way I played it, it's kind of going against the grain. The way that makes sense is obviously if you can find a mid long shot price on top and that horse comes in, then yeah, you can throw in the favorite underneath and, you know, you'll still make some money. Um, but the way that I played it and the way that I tend to play it is I'm kind of, I'm looking for that. Uh, I'm looking for that one, one big, uh, you know, make, make the day type of play just because 
um, from the time that I've been, um, you know, doing tracking data and all the stuff that I've done within handicapping and within racing, I've just, there's so many things that can happen as any horse player knows. So many things can, can go wrong or right in a race and especially on these grass races. So the way that I'm, uh, the way I look at these exactas or anytime I'm playing a race, I'm just looking to try and squeeze out as much value as I can. And if a favorite does get beat in the second spot, then I get a payday. And if the favorite comes in second, then it's kind of one of those things where, you look back and you say, well, you know, I kind of figured that would happen. That was what was supposed to happen. And I was just wrong in that race. So I'm not too hard on myself when it comes, uh, comes to that stuff. But like I said, it's more of just a systematic thing where if I can find some good prices on top, I'm really looking, trying to look to get paid and I'm going to throw out the favorite no matter who it is. Let's see if Grant can hit his exacta and if Mr. Alzgall can go gate to wire for me right now. And they're off in the Louisiana Champions Day Ladies Turf. Mr. Alsgal going out toward the lead, slotted over there for Alex Cintron. To the inside is Miss Billy Kay, who holds that rail position for Aubrey Green. Shortly, Mr. Alsgal from Miss Billy Kay with the rail heading toward the first turn. Fugitive Lady third, Mary Wood fourth between horses. Savvy Shipman taken back, special blessing, and is two moves up between horses as Mr. Alsgal leads them out to the stretch. Then comes Eskin for more toward the inside room to finish and Netta Bear, the last lob right away as they go to the back of the course. 23.71 for the lead part. Mr. Alsgal, the leading lady at the five and a half. Leads by a half to three quarters to the gray, Miss Billy Kay. Six more lengths away to, on the outside, Fugitive Lady, Marywood. They're vying for third, heading toward the half-mile pole. A break of four more then to Special Blessing in fifth. Is two is outside that in sixth. Savvy Shippen running in seventh position toward the rail, four furlongs from home. Three-quarters length, asking for more. Length and a half to the trailers. Net to bear outside, our room to finish the near side. Half mile in 48.75, they turn again. Mr. Alsgal continues to lead. Three furlongs from home. First under pressure was Miss Billy Kay being ridden. Here's Mary Wood now coming to take on Mr. Alsgal. Is two is picking up. Bearing out on the turn was Fugitive Lady. Asking for more in the green cap. Why does Netta Bear toward the inside looking to gain? Special blessing with Savvy Shipman. In the meantime, it's still Mr. Alsgal's lead. Three quarters, 114.96. It's Mr. Alsgal tackled by Marywood. Here's Eskin for more charging with Netta Bear and the Red Blinkers. Room to finish takes toward the inside. Then Savvy Shipman. They come past the 16th. It's Netta Bear asking for more. Room to finish. Netta Bear for Rongeru. Hattrick. Netterbear wins by length and a half. Second photo, room to finish just from Eskin for more. Savvy Shipman, followed home by Mary Wood with Fugitive Lady, is two. Special blessing, Mr. Alsgal and Miss Billy Kay tailed off in a Champions Day ladies' turf. And Netterbear gets it done at odds of 12 to 1, paid 26.20, and improved the buyer from a, 60, from a 62 to a 72. Grant, I know obviously with the favorite, Room to finish running second. It kind of messed up your exacta. And as you said before, like if a favorite runs second, it's not a big deal to you. How do you worry about the losing streaks and if they start to mount up? How do you try to keep that level head? I think that um, the best way to deal with uh, with losing streaks, or even with a with a beat like that. Obviously, uh, as people just heard, I ended up getting beat out in that exacta. It would have been a really nice payday. Uh, it would have been great to have, and just didn't happen. But what that comes down to when you take a beat like that or even when you're on a losing streak, in the long run, you will be right enough to where that type of bet is going to pay off. So I kind of mentioned it in the analysis, but looking at playing horses, uh, to me, uh, or any, anything really, if you're in, in gambling or whether it be 
financial markets and racehorses, no matter what the deal is, I think that using more of a systematic approach is going to be better for horse players in the long run, just because you take a bad beat like that. And in the moment, it's kind of rough. You wish you could go back and uh, throw the favorite in underneath, but at the same time, you pull up the data and you see that, okay, if, if I play this this way 10 more times and I'm only right once or twice, that's going to make up for all these losses. So and bad beats like that, losing streaks, I think it's important to, first of all, have the data. If you don't even have the data, then you're kind of beginning, then that's where people get in trouble because then you're kind of searching and you start coming up with different things and you kind of go down a hole that you don't want to go down to. So first of all, you need to get the data. And after that, after a loss like that or even a losing streak, I think it's important to just turn to that, to the, to the data that you've uh, accumulated and just realize that uh, it's going to happen. That's, that's part of it. Uh, you know, you're going to lose a lot more than you're going to win in this game. And if you can, um, if you can stick with it and uh, your, your stats show that you only need to be right once or twice, then just keep on going and, and eventually it's going to pay off. One thing that I found interesting in the chart, the 7, 8, 9, and 10 horses at the quarter pole at the beginning finished 1, 2, 3, and 4. Now, obviously, with your feet per second, you said you were looking for a closer. Well, the the last four horses at the quarter pole all came all came around first, second, third, and fourth. What is that uh, name of that system that you used, too, by the way, from the first part of the segment? Yeah, I should have mentioned that earlier. It's, it's called, if you just look up, uh, you can probably just Google it and it'll come right up. It's called RDSS 2.1. And basically all it is, it's, um, I'm sure people are much more familiar with uh, just the, the Sartan methodology. It's a software that's not as mainstream, but I've always used it just because it's pretty, it's pretty to the point. Uh, there's not too many bells and whistles. I think the more, most important part of a horse race is the horse. Uh, I don't necessarily need all the other, you know, sneaky little angles or, um, you know, trainer stats and stuff like that, although helpful in some situations. But most of the time I'm just looking at uh, how the horse runs w within the race and how that within the race matches up with other horses within the race. So uh, it's called RDSS 2.1 and people can find it just on Google or, um, or you know, wherever they get software from. With Netaberry, so it was one of your top choices from using the software was – Odd and Savvy Shipman, who also ran fourth, was asking for more room to finish really anywhere in there with those with those numbers. I know I haven't prepped you for that question, but if you know off the top of your head. I know asking for more uh, showed up well um, just from the, the half mile, from the second call that one of, in one of its races. But um, there, was a, there was a reason I didn't use asking for more um, on top. I ended up using that horse a bunch underneath. But yes, to answer your question, uh, that horse did come up late, but um, the two that I used on top were the two best late, and I just got beat out of that exactly with that favorite that I threw out. Obviously, Mr. Al's gal for me got right out to the lead, ended up just fading at the end there. So not a bad beat for me. Good price, I thought, at 5-1, to one, but obviously you were a little bit closer and just ended up getting split there by the favorite and another 6-1 to one type value horse. What do you say we end up going to the final race of today's show, race number 12, it's Louisiana Champions Day Sprint versus 100,000 again, six furlongs. And before we really get into the race, I just wanted to ask you, because for me, it just seems that I love sprints over routes. I just like how they can just throw it, throw it down. Do you have a preference? Do you like handicapping sprints or routes? Honestly, I don't really have much of a preference. I kind of, uh, the way that I go through a card is more of, um, I'm looking for uh, the best places for value, I'm um, looking for the the most likely races where the favorite can be beat. So that's always the first step. But as I'll 
go through the court and look for a horse that doesn't come up well in the numbers. And if that horse is a favorite or second favorite, that's I can throw that horse out. That's the race that I'm going to focus on. So as far as turf, dirt, sprint, route, turf, sprint, turf, route, I don't really have a preference. I'm kind of just looking for, uh, I'm looking to beat uh, favorites and whatever race I could just so happen to be in, that's where I'm going to gravitate to. Now, in this race, the number seven, Monty Mann, was the morning line favorite at 3-1, to one, but the number eight, Flashy Bruin, is going off the favorite. What were your thoughts on those two horses? Monty Mann is a horse that I actually used on top. Uh, this was another one of those kind of funny races near the end of betting, but I used Monty Mann on top. You mentioned was a 3-1 to one morning line favorite, so this was a, a case where I was going to use the favorite, and in races like this one, I'm going to use the favorite. I'm going to try and maximize um, that horse on top and maximize the value that I get from a horse like Monty Man. So I ended up playing um, just a bunch of cold exactas uh, with Monty Man over some of these crazy long shots uh, trying to get paid there. And then a, a big uh, on-the-nose win bet on Monty Man. And then a couple things sprinkled in there. With I, I tried to sort of, I don't want to call it saving myself, but I thought that number three, Laughing Saint Song, who also came up really good on my numbers, I thought that horse had a good chance. So I was going to try and hook up Laughing Saint Song with some Monty Man, um, just cold exactas and uh, cold late doubles. So in this race, I only used two horses, and those two horses were Monty Man and Laughing Saint Song. In races where I'm going to use the favorite, I try not to get too cute with anything and end up blowing the bankroll. And only, you know, even if the horse wins, I only make back what I spent. So I just used two horses here, uh, tried to key them on top of some crazy long shots, and then. Uh, just did a straight double with Monty Man and Laughing Saint Song into uh, the last race, the 13th race. Now, with number eight, Flashy Brew, I just thought that last race was so good, that allowance race. I didn't end up picking this horse, but Florent stayed, trainer Ron Fauché. The odds of them that last race, he went off even even money, 85, one by four. I thought it was interesting that he only went off, you know, between five and five to two and two to one. I thought this horse would take more money. It's tough to predict. Uh, I've made the morning line at Arlington over the summer, and I can firsthandly say now uh, it is, especially in bigger stakes fields, it's really tough to predict what the betting public is going to do. And Flashy Brew did take some money. Um, Like you mentioned, I thought that the horse was going to take even more money, just like uh, you just said, off that open allowance win uh, with a good number. Um, But Flashy Brew, I didn't end up using, um, just didn't didn't like the, the way the numbers were. Um, they were decent enough, but uh, not not um, well above everyone else to take a short price on. So I ended up passing on Flashy Brew. The horse I did end up on was number three, Laughing Saint Song. I just thought the 97 fire last time out, the good, strong workout pattern since the race in August. It always brings back a thing. Everybody talks about how numbers are so inclined in the betting. War M1. Back when he won the Derby, he was coming off of, I think, like a 120, 122 in the Illinois Derby. And everyone was like, there's no way he's going to run that fast again. And lo and behold, he went and won the Derby. So whenever I see a horse with a number like this that's way out in front, and the fact that they can bounce five, ten points and still end up winning the race, my strongest opinion of the day was Laughing Saint Song, and I put a very, very strong win wager on him. Yeah, and this was another horse that, uh, like you mentioned, it's hard. No matter what system or what strategy you're using, uh, this is going to be a horse that's going to pop up, pop up on your radar after that last race. I think that that last race was just, it was nothing more to say than it was a really strong numbers-wise, really strong Bayer-wise, and really strong visually. Um, the horse just looked good doing it. Uh, I think that, like I said, no matter what angles, what strategy, what system 
no matter how you play the races or look at horses, this was a horse that uh, was going to be on your radar. Well, you see, we get to the race call and see if me and Greg can get Laughing Saint Song into the winner's circle. And they're off. And the Louisiana Champions Day Sprint and a fast start for my friend Flavin, along with Takes Two to Tango on the outside, Inspector Eddie, and toward the inside is Laughing Saint Song, but it's Takes Two to Tango. It was the fleetest of the field. Leads here by length and a half to Laughing Saint Song with Inspector Eddie third toward the inside. Is Double Barrel Man in fourth. Monty Man in fifth has the orange silks. Looks to move up between horses. Flashy Brew wide in the clear with my friend Flavin, who's now gaining on the far outside. Classy John with the rail. It's a break of three more then to stand him up. Wind line wind toward the inside with Trey's Midnight Moon. Three furlongs from the winning line and hunker down trails. This dashing stakes dozen. The opening quarter in 21.71. They come toward the quarter pole. At the inside takes two to tango. Tackled on the outside as they straighten for home by Laughing Saint Song. Half mile in 44.85 seconds. Heads are turned for home. At the inside it takes two to tango with Laughing Saint Song. And these two fight it out tooth and nail into this final fairgrounds furlong. Closing Monty Man with Double Barrel Man. Then Wimbledon and win and inspector ready it is on the outside laughing saint song for colby hernandez laughing saint song scores in the sprint from takes two to tango then double barrel man edged out monty man for third hunker down was next with inspector ready then classy john laughing saint song gets the job done at a little over five to one pays 1340 for the victory decline on the buyer from a 97 to an 88 let's deconstruct this race grant what were your thoughts yeah, this, uh, like we mentioned before, um, this was just a horse that was going to pop up on uh, the radar no matter what, prove that uh, he could run back to those numbers and did and, and was an impressive uh, win. The five to one on the horse was a really nice price, too. I, I expect it to be a little lower, but in a big field like this, you'll get, uh, you'll get some inflated prices. I actually, uh, I cashed on the double, but uh, Unfortunately, the exact, uh, I, uh, got unlucky, but this was a perfect, uh, example, uh, race where I can, um, touch on quickly. This is where, this is a race where the strategy that I've talked about in the last two races, this is where it pays off because you get Laughing Saint Song, who was five to one, uh, a five to one winner. Your two to one favorite, Flashy Brew, ended up finishing second to last. So just that, just that in itself, that opens your, that opens, um, tickets up to plenty of good payouts and, uh, second just so happened to be take two to tango who went off at almost 70 to one and third was number two double barrel man who went off at 26 to one so i'm not saying that you're always going to have a 71 shot come out in second but this is one of those races where if you just if if you stick to your system and you think that you have a good couple good prices on top and you can um, confidently throw out the favorite in second place finish you know the two let's see the two out of the one dollar exact to pay 300 over 300 dollars so um, that's what I'm in the last two races. I think, uh, the, the strategy I was talking about, this is a perfect race to paint that picture where you just need to be right once, uh, you know, especially, um, uh, like I said, you're not always going to get a 70 to one shot underneath, but, and I'm not, and I certainly didn't, uh, hit this exact eye. Um, this was a race where I was going to use Monty man, who was a favorite. So like I said, before the race, I wasn't trying to get too crazy with anything. It was kind of just a straightforward ticket for me, but this is a, this is a perfect example of, um, using, a mid mid price that you like, mid to long price on top, throwing out that favorite underneath, and sometimes you get lucky with the seventy to one shot. I think it's interesting too. I looked up the fifty cent try; it paid seventeen hundred. Takes two to tango at seventy to one was pretty much working lights out with three straight bullets, and then 
uh, Double Barrel Man was moving into the Carl Broberg barn, who I know just broke the record or is close to breaking the record for most wins in the season. I know he's over 500, I believe. So that pretty much wraps up our show today, Grant. Uh, for next week, I know there's a bunch of stakes going on at Fairgrounds. Any certain uh, race you're looking forward to? Uh, there, actually, next week is going to be a ton of fun. Um, actually, uh, Mr. Monomoy, who's the half to Monomoy girl, is going to be in an allowance race uh, at the end of the course. I'm really looking forward to that race, not necessarily uh, betting-wise. I may, you know, sneak in something there on Mr. Monomoy, but that's going to be a fun race to watch. Um, a lot of good stakes next Saturday, uh, so a couple of good fields. So it'll be fun. There's not one in particular that I'm uh, that I've taken a, a deep dive look into yet, but as we get closer uh, to Saturday, I know that uh, I'm going to obviously dive deep deep dive in there and um, there'll be some this turf course this year uh, so far this season has produced some huge prices I mean even on champions that we had a couple good prices but we've had a 60 a couple 60 to one shots over the grass course uh, so a ton of 12 the 8 to 12 to 1 range and those are you're obviously more likely to catch an 8 to 12 12 to 1 shot than you are a 50 to 1 shot but I'd, uh, I'd, I'd caution people to keep an eye on uh, on these mid to higher price horses over this grass course uh, so far early in the season. I don't know. I don't necessarily know the reason behind it, other than we've had a ton of good evenly matched fields uh, over the grass course so far, and I assume that that's going to continue into next week. So it'll be fun. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that Saturday card, and I'm also looking forward to the Wednesday card. We have an early uh, a Wednesday race day here this upcoming week, which we don't usually have, so that'll be fun. And where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, it's just Grant underscore Lagrange, and that's usually where I'm most active on. Thank you so much, my man. Appreciate you for being on the show. All right, Spencer. Thanks, buddy. Thanks to all our great fans for listening to this show and my special guest, Grant Lagrange. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Forentel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. 